Hello and welcome to the Raptors show on the Sportsnet Radio Network, brought to you by Campbell's new Chunky Spicy Soup. It's time to get fired up. Make sure you find the Raptors show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. And please interview the show. I'm your host, Wim Lou. I'm joined by co-host Blake Murphy. Uh, how you doing, Blake? You all right? Yeah, I'm good, man. Uh, Short and show today, obviously. So uh, a lot to get through from the 135-127 double overtime loss last night. And if you're still tired from that one, guess what? They play again tonight, New Orleans Pelicans. Let's go. That's the thing about pro basketball. You know, you lose one game, you got a chance to redeem yourself the next day. Uh, We will talk a little bit about the Pelicans game. But um, yeah, I mean, look, last night, Raptors were competitive. Clearly, they were in the lead for the majority of that game. 23-point lead. It's the biggest lead they've blown in years. Yeah. The stat came up. It was like they they, they had gone through multiple years of holding on to 20-point leads yeah. successfully. At this point, I can't even look at Keeks's stats that she tweets out about this kind of stuff because everything's getting so negative now. Uh, that I don't need to know the last time they blew a 23-point lead. Someone should just respond every time. The thing about the old days, yeah. the old days. But These are not fun facts. Yeah. But, I mean, look, they, they played pretty good basketball in the first, yeah. you know, half. They, really good defensively. Yeah. You know, they had multiple chances. They had literally two chances to win the game, holding the ball, uh, coming out of timeouts at the end of regulation and at the end of the first overtime period. They, unfortunately, cannot get good opportunities on either uh, moment, and they ultimately lose and fall in double overtime. A lot of discussion. Obviously, there's a lot that I went through last night on the Reaction Podcast. I was able to go back and obviously look at the film, which uh, always provides like a more cogent kind of look at it uh, after the fact. But, you know, I think one major topic to come out of this was the play of Emmanuel quickly, who was aggressive throughout the game, was super prominent in the fourth quarter and the first overtime period. He was the guy primarily driving the offense. And um, we just so happened to have James Herbert, CBS Sports, who just wrote a, a really nice feature on Emmanuel quickly. So, uh, James, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on again. Thank you for coming on. Uh, yeah, man. So your your piece came up today. Uh, how ex Knicks six man Emmanuel quickly is shooting his way into Raptors starring role. Um, now I'd imagine the replies to that one as Raptors Twitter retweeted and stuff. Coming off of last night, I don't know the the quickly versus Barnes usage late was contentious, but I thought the piece was really really good. I thought it was a great insight from other players from quickly himself and you know at a at a high level. You know why did the Raptors feel that quickly is right now and long term a good fit next to Scotty Barnes as they kind of enter this uh, new era. Let's start there. Last night, maybe the fit didn't look perfect. The Raptors really went away from Scotty Barnes and Emmanuel quickly two-man actions down the stretch, which was probably the most frustrating part of the the closeout for me. But generally, I see, and, and I get the impression from your piece, that you see a real potential chemistry between, or at least a, a good fit between Scotty Barnes and Emmanuel quickly in Toronto. Yeah, I do. Thank you. That's a really generous intro. Um, I, I think the fit between those two guys, that's the simplest rationale for why they made that trade. Um, they could have done other things with OGN and Obi, um, but it really seemed like they saw a partnership that they could put together. Obviously, RJ Barrett, an enormous part of it as well. He's played super well since since the trade. Um, but I think it's it's a really clean fit. Um, it might look a little bit better if the spacing around them were like perfect, like if they had a shooting five in the mix or or whatnot. Um, but I think if you just watch some of the the passes that quickly has has thrown to Barnes out of the pick and roll, if you just look at some of the um, easy opportunities that he's been able to create, whether it's for himself or that's for others, like 
that kind of makes sense. Like uh, it, it wasn't a lot of those two operating together last night, as, as you guys mentioned, like especially um, in overtime, late fourth quarter. But it was a lot of quickly just handling the ball, just hunting mismatches, going at Josh Giddy, going at Shea Gilgis Alexander, often getting down into the paint um, and where he sometimes is able to get that floater off or finish and other times kicking out for an open shot or somebody who could attack a closeout. Um, and the cool thing about it is it works both ways too. Like quickly is used to playing with other ball handlers. This is the first time he's really stepping into the primary playmaker role. But I mean, you saw him in New York when he would go and screen for Jalen Brunson in the minutes that they did play together, then he would get lots of open threes for that. And we've seen that work in Toronto on, on several occasions where it's been quickly uh, slipping out of screens for, for Scotty Barnes or them running the Spain pick and roll that, that I know you love Blake. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just, it's kind of a hand and glove fit between those two guys, although it is very early. Um, they are still developing that chemistry, obviously. And, and I think quickly is like kind of in the process of adjusting to this new role. Yeah. Um, okay. So, Lots of things to touch on from that. I think one thing that you're highlighting the piece, too, it's, it's interesting seeing him transition between roles, right? Because in New York, it's the scoring. Now in Toronto, it's the lead playmaking. Last night, we saw 11 assists from Quickly. Uh, we saw him throw two dimes to Jakob Pertl in the first overtime period. Um, his assists are notably up. His turnovers are not up as much, which I think is, is a promising sign, but... Um, what do you make of that particular transition going from microwave score, six man type to now you are leading the show, but also asked to still be very effective as a score? Yeah, I think that that's sort of the big story about his game right now. It's not that different from the storyline surrounding Tyrese Maxey entering this season. That's a guy who, you know, he and quickly were college teammates. They are friends. Um, and I think, you know, when you are suddenly asked to be, the starting point guard to be the guy running the team. If your previous role is to come in and basically get buckets, that can be an adjustment. And I think quickly has been navigating that. Um, I note in the piece, and I mean, this is like this, the, the scene at the beginning um, where Darko Yakovic stopped a practice um, about a week and a half ago in Toronto and asked the team to name um, who the, the best above the break three point shooter in the league was. And they threw out some names, but he wanted them to say Emmanuel quickly. Nobody said Emmanuel quickly. And he actually, at that time, nobody was shooting better um, above the break than quickly was. He's an absolutely elite shooter and he can make threes off the bounce. Um, he can make threes on the move. Um, he is a guy that can really help open up your offense, can help diversify your offense with all the different ways uh, that you can use him. And I think there's a lot of different ways then if you are quickly where you can be effective and he is juggling a lot. If he's trying to think consciously about like, how can I get this guy involved? How can I make this guy comfortable um, versus when should I be just in attack mode? And I think it, it was interesting to talk to him about that. Um, and it was interesting to ask Darko Ryakovich about that too. And like, they both basically said similar things, which is like, yeah, it's new. It's an adjustment, but he is trying to be himself. He is trying to be aggressive. Ryakovich wants him to get up eight, nine, 10 threes, a game um and he's not doing that every night the last couple of games he has done that actually um and we'll kind of see where it goes but i think for the best playmakers in the league the best scoring playmakers in the league they are basically in read and react mode all the time like they are reading the defense if they're you know if the right play to make is the pocket pass if the right play to make is a pass to the skip pass to the corner whatever then they'll do that but 
that stuff is open because you are going in with an attacking mentality. And to, to hear quickly say it, like, that is his sort of mentality now. That's what he's telling himself. Like, he is the point guard, but ideally his passes, his assists are coming out of his own aggressiveness. So when it comes to what quickly can build into long-term, obviously in the short-term here, you know, he's getting more minutes, so his overall numbers are up. But on a per-possession basis, as you note in your piece, uh, the three-point volume's down a little bit, the overall shooting volume's down a little bit, his usage rate's down a little bit. Yeah. Not to any concerning level, it's just he, he's scaled that back a little bit. When you think about what Emmanuel quickly could become, and we've heard, you know, myself included, say, hey, if X, Y, and Z break, there's a potential fringe all-star somewhere in there how, mm-hmm. when you're talking about your confidence level in how much a guy's role can scale from very, very good role player to, you know, top piece or, or top three piece, say, in a good offense, how highly do you rank that ability to get your own pull-up three shot in terms of most important skills? I mean, for a guard, that that's up there, man. Like, that is um, something that, that puts the defense in a bind immediately. That That opens up all sorts of opportunities. And that's huge. Like a lot of the best point guards, shooting guards in the league, even not even just that, like think about like a Jason Tatum, like coming off of the pick and roll, like that opens up everything that that is where it starts. So um, the Raptors did not have a player like that at all for the first two plus months of the season. I think everybody's kind of getting used to the, the presence of Emmanuel quickly um, there. But yeah, I mean, I think if you're talking about his star ceiling, um, everything is sort of built outward from there and you know he came into the league he was a good three-point shooter but he has gotten better since he came into the league he was not a great finisher um he did get a lot better at that in new york the numbers in toronto have not been great in terms of you know the volume at the rim or just converting at the rim at all but he has really good touch you see that on the floater you could see that as a rookie this guy was launching like 17 foot floaters and stuff (laughs) like that like it was it was it was really wild but now I think his game is diversified a lot more on the offensive end. He can he can get to the pull-up too. He can get to the floater. He has um, kind of funky footwork. You'll see him sort of taking shots off the wrong foot, um, pivoting and stuff like that. Um, not quite the same as like a Jalen Brunson type deal in terms of like, you know, stopping and pump fakes and all of that stuff. But like he has a bag, like he has lots of ways to like get to his different spots and and find ways to get that that little floater off and get those little in-between shots off. And he has put on muscle over the course of his career so he can take more contact. Like I do think the offensive ceiling is quite high. Um, what that looks like the next time the Raptors have like a playoff caliber team, like is, is he averaging 25 points? Is he averaging 18 points, but he's averaging 12 assists? Like, I don't know. It kind of depends like what the roster looks like. I, I think, you know, if he is the number two guy, on this team in the long term, that could be totally fine. But maybe there's a world where like some other person we don't even know yet becomes the number two to Scotty's number one. And Emmanuel quickly um is not averaging 20 plus, but he's still like a super dangerous player all over the court, whether he has the ball or not, because he's such a good shooter. So a lot to like within that, certainly a lot of projectability if you do have that three-point shot at, at full volume. And you mentioned all the cool floater range stuff that he does, and he gets into it different ways. Um, you know, with range, certainly an ability to use if a defense is dropping back against you, if they're more concerned about your big. Mm-hmm. This is why I think we've seen, you know, Emmanuel Quickly's better offensive nights come alongside Jakob Pertl versus coming alongside, yes. you know, someone my size at center. Um, but, you know, the maxi comps 
come up. And I know you didn't make them. It's more about their friendship and their backstory to this point. And no disrespect to Bruce Brown, who tells you in this piece that uh, Emmanuel quickly can, quote, finish at the rim with the best of them. Uh, he can't. And that is probably the biggest sticking point right now in terms of projecting Emmanuel quickly to, you know, the type of potential offensive load we're talking about. He doesn't get to the rim a lot. He tends to take that kind of floater range shot instead. And he's not a particular, he's not an awful finisher, but he's not a particularly great finisher percentage wise when he gets there. Um, Where do you see the growth for him needing to come with that part of the game? Or is it just a matter of, Hey, once the defenses are up on you for three, once they know you're floater, that that's going to naturally progress because the maxi comp, you know, that is the biggest difference to me is maxi lives at the rim. In addition to doing this other cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think the percentage could go up. I, I expect it, frankly, to go up where it is right now because it was much higher in New York. I think if you look at clean the glass, he was what, like, a, I don't know, like 65 percentile finisher or something for for his position the last couple of years in New York. Um, so not a guy that's getting there a ton, but he's finishing well enough. He has, like, super awesome touch around the rim. Like, if you see certain, like, highlights, you're like, oh, my God, this man can score from, like, any angle. He can get shots off against bigger players. Um but the reality is he is about 6'2". Uh, he's like less than 200 pounds. Like it, it is hard for him to go up. He's also not a guy who's going to be jumping out of the gym and like dunking on seven footers or anything. So that, that's part of how he developed this awesome floater is that was just sort of a better option for him. But I mean, I do think he has shown improvement in that area. He is, like I said previously, he's gotten a lot stronger since he came into the league. Um, so some of this, I think, will naturally sort itself out. Like I think Pirtle being back makes a huge difference. Even if you look at, I mean, the numbers are so small, like you don't want to look at on-off stuff that much. But like the starting lineup that they had with Pirtle and quickly in it, um, pre-Pascal trade, those were positive. Um, the very tiny um, starting lineup with Pirtle back um, and I mean, you're quickly now post Pascal trade they, those have been positive as well and I think Pirtle does sort of simplify things for quickly as a pick and roll partner um, those guys have developed chemistry pretty naturally I think and Pirtle's is a really good screener and knows how to to get guys the extra space that they need and I think that that could be a factor in his percentage going up I think also um, if the spacing improves, if the roster changes and there's just more room for him to get to the basket and find like uncontested finishes at the basket, that's how your, um, finishing percentage will go up as well. So we'll just kind of see how the roster, um, sort of evolves in that respect. But also he doesn't necessarily have to be, um, a maxi level finisher. Um, he doesn't have to be like a Steph Curry level finisher necessarily. Like you can be a really good efficient scorer in the NBA, um, relying on mid-range stuff and floaters if you're awesome at that stuff. And he's pretty awesome at that stuff. Like I think about somebody like Chris Middleton, totally different type of player. He's like a six, eight forward. Um, but he is not this amazing finisher. He's not a guy that takes a ton of contact at the rim. He has to do it sometimes, but that's not his bread and butter. And like if Quickly's bread and butter is his pull-up three and his in-between game and, and his floater range stuff, then cool. Like I think that can still serve him well for years and years, even if he never becomes an elite, elite finisher. Yeah. Um, James, this is a great piece. Uh, I love the perspectives you got from current and former and maybe even future former Raptors in this story because um, there was also <laughs> a part with, with Fred in it too, and, and it was great to hear Fred's thoughts. But it, it's funny because, you know, talking about point guards who didn't finish well, Fred took a totally different approach. I think everyone was like, well, why does he develop a floater? Why does he develop a runner? Um, you know, why does he always go all the way to the basket and then maybe get the call, maybe not get the call, but finishing-wise was a low percentage. 
Now you have almost the opposite problem quickly. He rarely takes that extra dribble, gets all the way to the cup, and, and goes super strong to the rim. But at the same time, he has the more of the crafty package that you would typically see from a small guard. But again, go read the piece. It's up on uh, CBS Sports. And uh, James Harbert, I appreciate you for joining us as always. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. All right. No break for our second. No, nah, no break. Second guest. We have a man with, uh, is this a new mustache? Like, what's going on, Orrin? Orrin Weisfeld joins us right at large. Uh, you know, what's going on? Man? We, How you doing? we eat soup on the show once, and he comes in with a little soup strainer on the uh, on the top of the lip uh, there. What's up, man? What's up? This is my soup mustache. Yeah. I heard I heard it was a big soup night, so... No, we don't. Not, we don't have to get into the backstory of the mustache. I promise you, it's not that entertaining, and, uh, okay. it's, and it's long. And this is the result of of my shaving today, though. Okay, yeah. nice. Looks looks better than it should, I think. Which no, is like, I, I like this fit for you, man. Anytime someone looks like legitimately good with a mustache, I'm like, this is a compliment and an insult that you look good. You yeah, look yeah. like a mustache guy is a weird thing to say. Right? I always take it with a grain of salt yeah. because people are like, yeah, Emmett said I look good. And I'm like, mm. do I look good or do I look good for a guy with a mustache? But hey, All right. I'm rocking it. I feel good today. Okay, no one wants to hear this. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry I brought this up as my fault as a host. Yeah. Um, what people want to hear about is what the Raptors should do closing games. Because we saw, this is the huge discussion that came out of yesterday's game. How much was Scotty involved? Uh, how much was other people involved? How much did Darko, you know, a lot or scheme for each individual guy, et cetera, et cetera? Um, there's already been a huge discussion about this, but I think maybe just taking a step back in general, Orrin, I want to ask you, who should have the ball in their hands to close games in general for the Raptors? Yeah, so in general, I think the platonic ideal for really any team is that whoever is hot that night, whoever has it going, whoever has the best matchup, should have at least the opportunity to close the game out, right? Doesn't always mean they're going to finish closing the game out. Maybe if if they get that opportunity, things don't go well, then it ends up going to the superstar's hands, whatever. But in most cases, I think most teams, I think that is the culture you want to develop because otherwise it's almost like where is the reward for playing well, right? If I'm playing well and I, I hit seven threes that night, but then no matter what, for example, Scotty's just going to get the ball and I'm just going to play off it in the last five minutes. I don't think that's really the culture you want to create. I think it should be whoever's on that night gets the ball. And I think that's what was happening with quickly last night. I thought it was his best offensive game as a Raptor personally. I was really impressed with what he did, and he had a chance to close it out. We can obviously talk about what happened with Scotty later in the game and, and what went wrong and all that, but yeah, like to your general point, who closes games, I do think like the guy who has it going that night and who has the matchup should get rewarded with that opportunity first. I'm not, I, I'm not realistic, sure. Blake. Well, I agree in general that there should be an element of meritocracy with like an asterisk that, you know, you're going to base that on, okay, well, who's actually the best player in theory and, and, you know, who who do we trust the most in this? Like, like basically what I'm saying is if Thad Young was cooking right. last night, you're probably not reorienting the right. offense around oh, Thad Young. That. But among, among similarly, yeah, the Thad Young yeah. late game offense we've seen, it's actually Scotty doing the late game offense and just oh. like lay downs to Thad a bunch, which has yeah, been really true. effective. It has happened. You're um, right. So I think it's good in theory. I think you can try to do that and, and certainly – you know, the first 42 minutes of the game inform the last six minutes or so in that you know who's guarding who, you know who has the advantages where. Last night, I don't, where, where I disagree a little bit, Oren, is last night I actually, 
you know, with five minutes left in the fourth quarter, Quickly was four for 13. Yeah. He, he hadn't had, he'd been having a good playmaking game, especially with the Acapurtle, but he hadn't really shot the ball that well. Scotty had 17 points on 12 field goal attempts. And yes, when they put Lou Dort on Scotty, you're going to go away from that a little bit, but there were still chunks where like Shea was getting switched on to Scotty or Josh Giddy. Yeah, Aaron Wiggins took some turns. Yeah, Yeah. and, like, Wiggins can get into it a little bit. Like, he's good at, like, creating that lower base, at least, even though he's not a good – like, he's not as good a defender that you could shut Scotty Barnes down, but he's good at, like, getting low and strong, at least. The same way that, you know, the the theory with Lou Dort on Scotty Barnes, in addition to Dort being a good defender overall, is – and, Oren, you know this well from the World Cup – the reason Dort gives guys like Duncic so much trouble, even though he's smaller, is he's really good at getting low and strong – to take away that ability to kind of create that separation on the first step, bully you so you're you're backtracking a little bit. Anyway, in those possessions, I would understand Scotty, you know, maybe not being as involved. You don't want to bring Lou Dort into a situation where he switches onto the ball handler. You don't want to take Lou Dort into the post. But that wasn't the case for good stretches of that late game. So when we look at the last 15 minutes or so, the last five minutes of the fourth quarter and the two OTs, you know, quickly was getting into his shot more from that point on. Certainly, um, I'm still at a little bit of a loss. And will you, you and I, kind of, you know, semi spoiled the segment by watching the tape together earlier oh, yeah. about some of what happened. But it wasn't so much to me quickly's involvement and having the ball in his hands that was curious so much as um, the deployment of Scotty on, on some of the late game sets. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think to be clear, from last night's game, like quickly was definitely the option that the coaching staff wanted to go to. There was even an instance where uh, RJ got the ball, he rebounded the ball, threw it ahead to Scotty. Scotty had the ball, and he was, like, right in front of uh, Darko on the sideline. And you could even tell Darko coming over towards him, and then immediately Scotty gives the ball up to quickly and then goes to park in the corner. So to be absolutely clear, I think that the priority for last night was that they wanted to go through quickly for a lot of sets. Having said that, though, they're also, you know, 10 minutes of overtime. The whole entire fourth quarter was closed. There was a lot of instances where I think that, you know, Scotty could have initiated or Scotty could have not passed back, for example. There was t- two instances where quickly gave Scotty the ball uh, with Dort helping off of Scotty, and Scotty could have chosen to catch and shoot for three. I mean, he turned those down, whatever, but, you know, there's all that aside. But I think in general, Orrin, like, Scotty has been really, really good. First off, Scotty was really good for like the first 40 minutes last night, right? The other part is he's been really good in the fourth quarters in general. So mm-hmm. why and clearly there's this like, you know, very transparent push to make him the number one guy, feature him as much as possible. Um, why not just run with him in the fourth quarter? Like even if it's just development, whatever. I think it's there's a purpose to that, no? I don't know. I think I might be a little bit on a different page as you guys here. Like I think Scotty deserves some culpability here. Yes, the coaching staff put him in the corner way too much last night. Um, With that being said, he has to find ways to involve himself in the game down the stretch, even if he doesn't have the ball in his hands. Maybe this is a bigger picture question about what do you see as Scotty's ceiling? Do you see Scotty as a number one scoring option on a title team? If you do, then like, yeah, developmentally, you want him every single game getting those reps. Mm -hmm. If you don't, I think it's okay to spread those reps out a little bit to quickly and RJ and guys like that like whatever it may be. And that's really going to come down to like what you see as Scotty's role going forward. But last night's game to me is a really weird one to analyze and to like take it as a bigger picture thing and like 
say it out to 82 games and say, like, this is what's happening with the team. This is what Scotty's doing. Because it wasn't typical Scotty. Like like you just said, like, Scotty's 10th, I think, this season in fourth quarter points overall in the league. It's not like he's a guy who's not getting touches in those moments. This was one of the few games where it happened. I think that's why it stands out so much. But it didn't happen. They took it away from him. Like you said, quickly wasn't as good as I thought he was until those last five minutes. I think he did have like nine assists at that point. Mm-hmm. And then he just, he, he seemed to hit every shot for the, for the rest of regulation. Like he, he it, it worked mm-hmm. until overtime. Um, but with Scotty, like I, I thought, you know, yeah, the coaching staff deserves some blame for the positions they put him in. Scotty also deserves some game for the way that he, the last 10 minutes of that game went. Yeah, and there was a good example, Will, that you and I watched where, um, you know, while an action is happening over on the strong side, Gary sets a pin-in screen for, for Scotty. And Gary actually tells him, like, yo, 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 this is a good opportunity for me to set a screen for you, which might be the first time I've seen Gary actually do that. Yeah, and yeah. Scotty has the option then to lift out or, or yeah. like, make himself presentable for the, the skip pass that wasn't going to come and stuff yeah. like that. Um, and then there's also an opportunity on that same possession a couple other times when you're in the weak side corner to be a baseline cutter too, right? And like Scotty's, sure. yeah. Scotty's a really good 45 angle cutter, like kind of cutting through the elbow into the paint. Um, he, he just has a good sense of spacing and stuff like that. So I'm with you that this is a shared thing. I want it like I, I don't think we're having this discussion as like a, was it Scotty's fault or the coaching staff's fault? It's just how do you win a, a game? Late and like to your point, Orin, Emmanuel quickly is only 24 and is now part of this team's future mm-hmm. as well. It's not like Bruce Brown was running ISOs a week, a couple days before he gets traded or, or anything like that. Um, the other part of this, though, where I do think there is an element of the coaching staff is that even if you want to run things through Emmanuel quickly, well, what was the thing that we all said we were excited to see develop and, and build the chemistry with the second Emmanuel quickly and Scotty Barnes were on the same roster two man action two man action zero in the fourth quarter and overtimes yeah. between Emmanuel quickly and Scotty Barnes so if Scotty Barnes is being guarded by Lou Dort and Emmanuel quickly has a matchup yet you don't want to bring Lou Dort into okay I can get there a little bit but if Scotty Barnes has Josh Giddy on him in the yeah. corner or an, another lesser defender, if it's Shea on him. Or, and Shea's been way better defensively this year, but he's not Lou Dort. So we'll use him as an example. And you're about to run an Emmanuel quickly action over here with Thad Young because Thad Young is, you know, the center at that point. You as a team have to reorient and be like, no, Scotty come up and set that screen because then best case scenario, this is a really good two-man action that mm-hmm. we can score off of. I think they had seven points on four Emmanuel quickly Scotty pick and rolls over the first three quarters last night. And worst case scenario, well, okay, you've gotten Giddy switched onto Emmanuel quickly, and if you string that out and let him get in the floater range, mm-hmm. there's some length there, but at least you've created a better situation than, well, the center is going to screen because he's the center, and, you know, you're, you're I don't know. I, I think there were more opportunities to, even if you want to feature IQ last night, mm-hmm. um, like Oren is making a good case for, you could have used Scotty Barnes better as a screener or as an off-ball weapon, and yes, some of that's Scotty, but some of that's also... You know, someone on the sidelines has got to be like, more like coaching to me. Yeah, someone or, someone on the sideline has got to be yelling out like, "Hey, we got to invert this play, Thad. You you go space out or something like that. At yeah. least force the Thunder to pre-switch that or something." Um, because yeah, you you can't leave mismatches like that on the table against a team as good as the Thunder. Mm-hmm. That really, you know, they're not going to give you soft spots like that to to mine very often. Yeah, Orin, I, I want to ask you on this. Um, how do you think Scotty's game, or how do you think Quickly's game? varies with Scotty as a screener versus with Jakob as a screener. Yeah, so this is the thing where maybe Darko is a little bit, you know, first of all, just to the point of we want to see more two-man action, 
you know, I, I give the coaching staff a little bit of, you know, benefit of the doubt here because they've just had so many new pieces coming in and out and they have so many things that they're trying to prioritize. And, and maybe they just haven't gotten to that two-man game yet. And I know that's not something you necessarily have to practice before you just say, Scotty, go screen for quick. But in general, like, it, it's the same exact talking point we had with Adrian Griffin in Milwaukee, right? Yeah. Why aren't they running more Damianist pick and roll? Sometimes yeah. just like you need a balance, you need other guys involved. And when the going gets tough, that's going to be the shot. Now, I also understand why there's criticism here. This is a team that's 10 and 19 and in the clutch. If you're talking about coaching, that's often what coaches get mm -hmm. graded on. And they're not putting their best two guys in actions. You know, yeah, that's a problem. Maybe to your point, to your question, Darko's a little hard-headed in that he wants the spacing and he wants three outside shooters with that pick and roll. To me, a lot of what Darko has said has been prioritizing spacing. And so if sure. you do run it with uh, Scotty and Pirtles in the dunker spot, maybe he just doesn't like the look of that. Um, I, I don't know exactly. But again, I, I think we're going to see it, right? Like quickly, the reason they made the trade, Masai said this on the open gym clip, mm -hmm. is because he loves the fit with Scotty. I'm sure we're going to see this two-man action develop over the years here. Last night was like a really unfortunate loss. Mm -hmm. um, but... To me, it's not like indicative of what's going to happen going forward with the team. And it's not indicative. So I have some stats here on their their leverage and or their usage in high leverage situations uh, on the season and before the trade. So this isn't the NBA's definition of clutch because uh, five points with five minutes to go is uh, you know that that's it's no not in the modern NBA, not in Tyrese Halliburton's NBA. <laughs> is that a narrow enough de definition? Twenty three points with yeah. three quarters exactly. Yeah. Uh, so this is in high leverage situations. Um, it, Emmanuel quickly since he got here is at almost 30% usage. And then after that, it's uh, Schroeder at 24%, Barnes at 22 and Siakam was just below 22 when he was there. Mm. Since the Pascal trade, so we're we're talking small-ish samples here, but it's been Dennis at 25%, Scotty at 24 quickly at 24 weirdly, Jakob at 24. He's just been, uh, whether by offensive rebound or getting hacked or whatever. Um, and then RJ at only 16% in, in high leverage spots. Um, but to your point earlier, Oren, Scotty is near the top of the league. He's uh, 14th in, he's 10th in clutch scoring, 14th in high leverage scoring, and he's done that on 73% true shooting. So mm -hmm. uh, there is not a big picture issue with Scotty late oh, in close fun. games. I, I just wanted to you know provide those numbers as well. It's been very effective to this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the the reason why there was such a big discussion about it mm -hmm. after the game. Because it's like, even before that, there was, I think the last shot Scotty took before over time, he went one-on-one -on -one against Chet Holmgren, driving out of the right corner, and seemingly had no actual advantage, but was able to half-step, pivot, and then eventually throw up a left hook, banking it off the glass, to, to score over Chet Holmgren, who's an alien. Like, so I think people are just always like, okay, here we go, we're, we're gonna he's going to take us home. You know I mean, it could be, it'd be really weird if you watch the Thunder game, and I'll be like, Shea's not going to have the offense down the stretch because you know what? We're not going to give the ball to Shea because uh, Scotty's guarding him. That's the best defender. Instead, we're going to go to Josh Giddy to close the game because he's got Gary guarding him. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there's just no question. There's no question. About Maybe some possessions. I mean, I've seen some Jalen Williams game winners. He wasn't <laughs> available in this one. But, yeah. you know, that's another guy who has such a high skill set that you want to see it. I think for me, it's just like, A, I agree with you. Find whatever reason way you can to win games. I understand that's a developmental season, but these are very important developmental moments. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing too is just like, if you aren't involved in the play, find a way for the coaches to involve the two in a play and then also to not disengage so much. 
when you are not in the play. That's that's all. Um, but unfortunately, they lost. But they did play an overall pretty good game. I thought from yeah. the first half, their strategy against Shea was was really good. I mean, the, those double teams really cut Shea off on a lot of drives. Uh, didn't even give him the mid-range. They didn't foul him much either. You know, these are all things that, again, Shea can do. And, of course, it was good for the Raptors to not uh, have to contend against a team that was hitting a bunch of threes on those kickouts. And it burned them in the second half and in overtime when the Thunder did get hot from three eventually. But, um, yeah, what did, what did both of you guys think about just the game plan in general from Darko? Because, again, I'm also looking at his game plans in addition to the development of the young players. Yeah, I thought it was strong defensively. I thought they re- did a really nice job on Shea and to a secondary level did a nice job on Chet Holmgren in the, you know, really the the first two and a half quarters. Um, you know, I thought they gassed out a little bit in addition to the Thunder starting to hit okay. some threes. But like you saw Mark Dagno have to make a pretty big adjustment. Josh Giddy was so ineffective in the first half mm. with all the space the Raptors were giving him saying, hey, Tilt this to the second side. Use Josh Giddy over there initiating in space or, or operating out of the dunker. And Giddy was able to do so little with it that they actually didn't start Giddy in the second half. Giddy has never come off the bench in the NBA. And they didn't start the second half with him because of what the Raptors were able to do defensively. Now they figured it out. And some of that was getting hot on threes. Some of that was, you know, the Raptors, I think, Look, they hadn't... Scotty played 48 minutes. Barrett and Quickly were at 43. Even Dennis played 36. Gary played 40. Like, they were mm-hmm. they were pretty toast by, by the end there. But I thought to start, um, it was a good game plan. They, they just maybe don't have the experience level yet to execute that kind of start to finish. Obviously, you you allowed a very, very big run there in the third quarter to, to make this back into a game and weren't able to steer out of it. But, you know, what the initial game plan looked like, I... I thought it was. I thought it was good. You don't. You don't have halves where Shea and Chet look downright human very often. Yeah, like defensively, you look at this team and it's really small compared to what we've seen over the years, right? And and you're like, so how does this team get to that defensive top ten level unless they get a bunch of wings in the door and then they kind of you know change the identity of what they want to do on the offensive end? So defensively, you're always kind of wondering how is this team ever going to get to that level? Last night was a really good example, the first half of like, this is what it has to look like. You're not big, Mm. but you're fast. And like pretty much every time Shea has a screen, you put two on the ball. Every time in the first half, that guy was coming up from the baseline, getting up to the shooter, and then the rotations were crisp. But like you said, it's a young team, and and they kind of, whether it was energy or just focus, um... In the second half, the exact same plays. I didn't think Thunder were doing anything differently. Exact same plays. Guys are botching the switch. Guys are are botching the the rotations. Like there was a play where RJ goes. It looked like he went under a screen, and people were like, "Why is RJ going so so hard under on Dort?" And it's like RJ's not going under. He's taking the screener, but the other guy doesn't know that that's a switch. Yeah. And that just happened again and again in the second half. Right. The the amount of open threes they gave was wild. But yeah, like on a positive note. I really thought the defense was like, this is how you want this team to play every night if they want to give themselves a real chance, especially coming off that Houston loss, which was just no defense was being played. Um, I I thought the game plan was really sound. Take Shea out, make those guys hit threes. And I thought the rotations look really good. And and like it is using speed to your advantage now that you don't have size. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll be really interested to see too when the Thunder are here. I think it's March 22nd. They're back here. If they have Jalen Williams back, you probably can't, oh, it's you, a lot you can't use the yeah. same strategy yeah, you used last night. So, you know, how does Darko adjust to that? How does this team adjust to that? Uh, are they aware of Aaron Wiggins on ATO plays <laughs> sneaking oh. to the rim? Uh, that, one was, that one was tough. That right. one was tough. But, um, yeah, the only thing I was going to say, too, is watching the game from yesterday, 
I, I feel so good about what Cannabis was going to do. Whew. Like, what Shea was doing in that game. Lou, who has really stepped up and improved his three-point shot. Um, by the way, Lou Dort's three-pointer provides the longest offensive rebounds opportunities because he shoots that thing so high, there's no chance that thing bounces near the basket. Um, but he's up to 39% from three on the season. He made a whole bunch of big threes to force overtime and then even in double overtime as well. Um, and, of course, RJ has also, you know, become more efficient and more effective here in Toronto. I thought he played a really good game, uh, except for that key, 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 key turnover, which honestly could have avoided all of this. Like, we literally mm-hmm. could have just exactly. come in here and just celebrated the win. But uh, young team, figuring it out. And, you know, at least for Team Canada, though, like, I, I'm excited to see that basketball in the summertime. Yeah. One more member of Team Canada we'll see tonight, uh, JV's child, who he joked back in the day uh, could play for the Canadian uh, national team oh, because they were born here. Uh, that's a, a clunky way to pivot to yeah. it's time now for Between the Lines brought to you by Bet Rivers. Take a chance. Uh, so on the Pelican side of things, Zion, Herb Jones, Larry Nance, all questionable. Okay. Uh, so a little hard to, to lock this one in on the Raptors side. Second night of a back-to-back after going to double OT last night. RJ's going to sit out because last night was his first night back from the the knee swelling that he'd been dealing with. So just injury management there. Everyone else, as far as we know, except for him and Jonte, uh, you know, good to go. That the, the 905 guys are with the 905, but but you know, quickly and Pirtle, who are just back and we're on minutes loads, uh, they are as far as we know good to go. The Raptors on minutes loads because they how, were initially how much were they uh, not last, last night, night apparently. Yeah, Yaka played yeah. 33 which is, I think, kind of low for his effectiveness in that game, and then quickly played 43. And allegedly they were Friday, but they were getting blown out so badly, and Jakob fouled out in like 20 minutes that we never found out what the minutes limits uh, were. The Raptors, though, uh, despite all these questionables for the Pelicans, are 11.5-point underdogs. It's only the second time they've been that big a dog since the Tampa tank. The other time was when they were in L.A. to face the Clippers earlier this year. They covered, but they didn't win. Um, I guess the primary thing I'm curious about in this matchup is – and. I'll ask both of you guys what you think about this. Scotty on Zion or Scotty on Ingram? If Zion plays. Okay, first off, nobody can guard Zion when Zion's, like, fully on. Because one of the, like, lasting memories I have of Zion was there's a game when the Raptors were in Tampa because the Raptors played the Pelicans twice earlier that season and OG had to guard Zion. And even against OG, this guy had, like, 36 or something like that. Probably a different Zion physically, but yeah, I mean, I don't really see anybody else remotely with this enough strength to, to contain Zion. So probably has to be Scotty. You know, what do you think? Does anyone else have a chance? Uh, yeah, I mean, they might put Pirtle on him. We've seen teams do that. Just put your center on him, stick okay. him in the paint, and then that that would be my guess. Put Scotty on, on Ingram because, I don't know, Scotty loves those perimeter. He loved taking the perimeter assignments for whatever reason. So that would probably be my guess. But that is alarming that they're 11-point underdogs. Like, yeah. I guess the Raptors are officially back to being somehow, like, underrated, you know, in, like, some weird way. Because Oh, no, we're back with training camp. Yeah, exactly. It's about, vi- it's about team vibes. Do they like each other? Are they underrated? But uh, I, Hey, I'd take some of that uh, right now. That was Between the Lines, yeah. brought to you by Bet Rivers. Take a chance. One other thing on tonight's game. I strongly What's recommend going, going to check out Jonas Valanciunas' basketball reference page. Remarkable how consistent he's oh, been yeah. year over year, including his salary never changes. He's his just salary made the is exact at 16 same money. per year, right? Like every yeah. single year. It's his really average amazing. is at like 15 points, nine rebounds. Two and a half assists, 35% on threes. Yeah, and he's shooting like probably close to 60% from the field. This has been him since his second season, but... Uh, Anyway, that does it for us today. I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptor Show 
on the Sports Radio Network, brought to you by Campbell's new Chunky Spicy Soup. It's time to get fired up. Make sure you find the Raptors show wherever you listen to podcasts. And subscribe, and please write and review this show. Thanks once again to the producers, Mark Boffel, uh, Amiman, uh, Derek Brandale, Jennifer Rolnick, David Sis, Jeremy Manitad, and thanks to our guests for today, James Herbert and Oren Weisfeld. We'll talk to you tomorrow.